All right. Why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, please. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. The message is entitled, How to Accomplish Spiritual Maturity. The determined purpose of the life of Paul was to grow and mature in Christ Jesus to the cons- uh, to be constantly being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ by the very same power that raised Christ from the dead, he said, in verse 10 through 11. This clearly is not a natural desire of our sin nature, but tragically, neither is it guaranteed automatically by our new nature. There is always um, in the believer life's personal responsibility to grow, develop, and mature in the faith through obedience. We saw that in chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, that it's both God that wills to do of his good pleasure, but he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there's that human, that divine. We are not uh, on cruise control. We, it doesn't happen automatically. Uh, we have to make decisions every day. We have the capacity, whether we have the will to yield to the Lord, that's a whole different matter. Now, Paul has just revealed to the Philippians that the believer's personal sanctification is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith in Christ, not by the law or any other personal accomplishments. He's made this very, very clear. Now he moves to reveal that the believer's practical sanctification is an ongoing process of spiritual maturity throughout life, not a product of perfection in this life. And he characterized it by three things here. Let me read verse 12 through 16. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold on that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold on me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And so... The ongoing process that goes on for spiritual maturity is characterized by the perspective regarding spiritual maturity in verse 12, the perspective. Secondly, we have the principles regarding spiritual maturity in verse 13 and 14. And thirdly, we have the persons regarding spiritual maturity in verses 15 and 16. The perspective regarding spiritual maturity is where he begins. Verse 12. Notice the Apostle Paul declared that he had not yet reached final spiritual maturity in this life. It's important. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Paul did not attain final maturity all at once at His conversion on the Damascus Road is what he's talking about. It goes back to chapter 9. We kind of touched on that when he gave us all his accolades that he had accomplished. Now, the word attain 
means to lay hold or to receive. The indicative errors active tense is not a completed action finalized. So there is no confusion here. There is no way that he's not talking about uh, at that time. But he's saying all the way back from the past, errors means something in the past that took place. And it's active, is not finalized, so it's still going on. So in the Greek, it's very, very clear. Now, the negative is expressed. He did not lay hold or receive at his conversion anything God had for him. He was born again, but he didn't receive all maturity nor all things. The conversion and salvation of Paul on the road to Damascus was only the beginning of a lifelong process. If you're a Christian, you identify with Paul. When you first came to Christ, definitely a miracle happened. Your heart was transformed, your life was changed, and a new life began. But everything that you were ever going to be didn't happen all at one time. There were many other things that Paul would learn and experience from that point on. There were many other things God would do through him. This attaining or getting hold of was the active responsibility of Paul to appropriate because he's still a free moral agent. You, when you came to Christ, you've been making decisions for Christ. You are the one that's responsible to cultivate that life and yield to Christ. What is the thing that he had not laid hold of or attained? Some say the price in verse 14. But that would not make sense. It must be related to what already has been stated. This verse is the explanation. He says there, I have not attained. So it has to be looking back to what he has said, not forward. Paul has just told them his motive for being found in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death and be raised out from the dead. Verse 10 and 11. Paul had laid hold and appropriated the power of his resurrection. We know that. The fellowship of his suffering. And being conformed to his death on an ongoing basis and process. But not to a final experience nor the physical resurrection as some were teaching. That's what he's talking about the price. Literally you and I are experiencing the power of his death as we die to self-trusting the spirit. And it's an ongoing process and one day... We will experience the ultimate last step when we are raised with a glorified body. The same power that allows you to live the resurrected life is the same power that will give you your glorified body. This is the price. Second Timothy two seventeen and 18, Paul says, Their message will spread like cancer. Hymenius and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, we don't have any real evidence in the epistle 
that some of the Philippians believed this or were teaching this. Whether Paul is just saying this as a straight teaching, we're not sure. Some commentators say this. I don't find anything in there. Yet, we do have 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18, where some were teaching the resurrection already passed and overthrowing the faith of many. Okay? And once in a while, you run into people who say, well, the resurrections already have, they spiritualize it. Okay? They don't take a literal resurrection. Now, Paul also had not to, uh, to the present day, been perfected to moral or spiritual maturity. The word there, perfected, means to complete, accomplish, or to consummate to the end again. This, his conversion on Damascus Road, as we said, had only begun his growth towards spiritual maturity, a lifelong process. Um, I was born again in 1973, and it's been a process all along. I remember first being born again, and we would uh, talk to some people that were in the Lord 10, 15, 20 years ago. Wow. You know, we say, well, man, we'll get there. It'll be, you know, we'll know everything. And, you know, we'll... Listen, it's a process. You never arrive. As long as you're here, you haven't arrived. But continued in this process as he labored about nine years in Tarsus, remember, one year at Antioch and three missionary journeys. Thirty years later, writing the letter, he still is in the process of spiritual maturity. He had not come to the place in his Christian life even after these many years where there was no room for growth or spiritual maturity having reached the full measure. Now notice, the Apostle Paul declared that there are specific works and events that God has purpose to work out the process of spiritual maturity. Still in verse 12, he says, But I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul recognized his need to move forward in salvation. The word but, it's an adversive conjunction. The sharp contrast is emphatic here. From not having been perfected to pressing on to perfection in that process. The phrase press on means to pursue or chase. The root word has the idea of to flee, pursue, you can sometimes even translate persecuted. The tense is the dirt of present, continuously pursuing here. The word is used for a hunter chasing the hunting down his prey. The word is also used by Jesus for Paul in the negative. Why are you persecuting me? Acts 9.4, when he appeared to him on the Damascus Road, same word. This was Paul's daily discipline, the next step moving him on in spiritual maturity. Notice um, Paul recognized that he was responsible to lay hold of the purpose of God for his life, as he says, which Christ Jesus has also laid hold on me. 
he pressed on to lay hold on that which Christ Jesus had laid hold on him for. The word he used is the historical heiress which Christ laid hold on me. The past experience of Damascus and the future that I may lay hold. Christ laid hold on him. Now Paul had to lay hold on the things Christ had laid hold on him for. That partnership of Ephesians, of here Philippians 2, 12 and 13. The Greek word is katalambano, to make for one's own, to obtain. No one can do that for Paul. Paul had to do this. No one can do this for you. You have to do it. Linsky, the Greek scholar, let me quote him here. He makes an important note. Quote, Paul is steadily pursuing in expectation of making the capture with finality, arrest. And this rests on the fact that at Damascus he got captured by Christ. Both are strictly punctiliar. In other words, punctiliar, boom, it happens at a set point in time. And indicates momentary acts all in an instant. Paul got captured all in an instant. When the time comes, he will get to capture. Paul went to Arabia, as you know, for three years and preached in Damascus, having to flee for his life, Galatians 1, 15 and 17, and 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33 tells us. Paul then went to Jerusalem and was accepted by Barnabas. Barnabas took a chance on him, and he spoke up for him. Everybody else didn't want nothing to do with him. They thought he was an undercover Pharisee. Galatians 1, 18 and 19, then again in Acts 9, 26 and 27, we get this. Paul was sent then to Tarsus due to the fact that he started preaching in Jerusalem. He got too hot to handle. The Jews wanted to kill him. So in Acts 9, 28 through 30, in chapter 11, 22 to 26, Galatians 1, 21 to 24, we get all this information through Paul's letters in the book of Acts. Paul later would lead three missionary journeys in Acts 13 to 19. All of these press Paul into the spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Every step, every event, every experience, growing, developing, maturing in Christ. You know, it's like some teenagers, they think they know it all. I call them Ikes. They're 18, but some are very immature, like 12-year-olds. If you're 18, you must be matured up to that level. So the growth and development of maturity has to be on equal plane. When the growth and maturity is there, but the, uh, the growth and development of maturity is down here. What do we usually say? Act your age. They're six foot tall. Got a beard. But maturity down here. The person who thinks they um, have arrived at a final spiritual maturity at any period of their life is not being living in reality. But self-deception. They are the first to know they still fail and have the capacity to sin. 
So they're being self-deceived by themselves. And there are people like that. They're ignoring and denying the people that confront them and point out their imperfections. They'll always turn it around and say, well, they're just, they're just critical. They don't understand the scriptures like I do. Hmm. They're contradicting the scriptures. Jesus said to the Jews who caught the woman in the very act of adultery, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone in John 8, 7. As long as you're in this body, you have capacity for sin. There's saints and ain'ts, but the saints are still sinners who ain't sinning, <laughs> okay? As a practice of life, but they still have capacity to sin, okay? So once in a while there comes along the doctrine of sinless perfection. And that once you're a Christian, um, you no longer sin, really. Wow. I don't know what world they're living in. The question is, are you laying hold for what Christ has laid hold on you for? They will um, reveal your need of um, further um, maturity. They will reveal that you have not arrived, and they will make you more like Jesus Christ. Paul told the Ephesians in 2.10, for we are his workmanship, um, handiwork. We get our word poem from it. Uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Should walk in them. Doesn't mean you will walk in them. I wish I could tell you that in the last 43 to 44 years, I've walked in everything God has for me. You know, I'm sure I've missed some, a lot of stuff. Because we're not perfect. But God has all kinds of stuff for us. And some things are like window times. They're only there for a little while. Once the window closes, it's gone. I look back upon my life, some of the things that God allowed me to do, that they were window times. They were there just for a time. And if I, I, I wouldn't be able to do them now. So it's being sensitive to what God has and what he's doing so that I can walk in the things that he has prepared for me to be part of. This is the um, perspective regarding spiritual maturity. Secondly, he comes to the principles to accomplish spiritual maturity in 13 and 14. In 13, the Apostle Paul recognized that as long as he was alive in the physical body, he had not apprehended all God has for him. Listen to his words, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Now, you, you, you think that Paul is just repeating himself to hear himself. He keeps hitting the same subject as we've seen from different angles. That's how you teach, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's where you get the word catechism from. You catechize, repetition. Paul is cutting off any thought or idea that he or any person had accomplished all in life. The Apostle Paul lived in reality. The first word count, logizomai, means to consider, to reckon, or to conclude. It's an accounting term. The tense is the indicative present, middle voice. Concluding this himself. 
The middle voice always includes the person doing the action themselves when you take the middle voice. At the present time when he's writing this epistle, indicative precedent. So, from the 30 years on the road to Damascus to the present 30 years, he's still in process. He's still pressing forward. He has not arrived. The second word is apprehend. The same word as the phrase is literally laid hold of in verse 12. But in the negative this time. The tense is the perfect active. To have for one's own all the things Christ apprehended him for in life. The word is translated taken for the woman taken in adultery in John 8.3. Notice the Apostle Paul wanted the Philippians to know two things. He had no such high opinion of himself and he had no such high opinion or allowed anybody to have such an opinion of himself because it would be false. So he didn't think like this about himself and he didn't want anybody else to think like that about him because it would be false. And it's easily done when we, you know, when you're first young in the Lord, you look at some men that God is using or used and, 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 you, and, and you say, well, I don't want to go around him because he, he, he may read my thoughts or, you know, he, he'll know what. You know, we just put him more than men. All right? And though that seems kind of weird, it does happen. Okay? And when you have corrupt men in the places of the church, then those men take advantage of that. And they rip people off. Now, Paul is declaring a mild rebuke here to those who thought they had apprehended all and had become complacent or lazy, probably. There were those who were not one with Paul and were preaching Christ to add to his hurt in the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, as we saw. There were the Judaizers who were attempting to convince the believer to trust the law for their perfect standing before God in chapter 3, verse 2 and 4. The first of Luther's 95 famous theses was the whole Christian life is a continuous repentance process <laughs> to stay right with God. Notice the Apostle Paul recognized that he had to repeat a daily three-fold process. Don't miss it here at the end of 13 and in 14. Paul said first, the past must be reckoned dead every day. Listen carefully. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, focusing on our attitude. Very important here. Paul used the athletic metaphor of a runner in these verses to describe the Christian race. 
He was very familiar with the Olympic Games at the amphitheater in Ephesus and the Ithmian Games at Corinth. He had pastored both churches. The primary context refers to forgetting all his work to be justified before God in the context. But also what God had done in and through him to be living in the past as if that was all God had for him. That happens a lot of time in people's lives. Or that there was nothing better to come and miss the present and future things God already had. So not allowing the successes or what God has done in the past to live in the past and to think that everything's done or everything's over. God's not going to do anything else. God's past works can hypnotize us so that they cripple us for the present and future. Always thinking of the good old days. We hear that a lot, but they weren't as good as we think they were. We kind of just doctored them up, kind of like senior pictures, you know, cheesecloth over it. Having an attitude that there is nothing better ahead. So you have no vision, you have no passion. You just exist even as a Christian. Paul secondly said, the present must be lived in expectant hope. Listen to his words. Reaching forward to those things which are ahead, focusing now on action. The foundation is attitude. Actions follow. He again continues his metaphor of the race by the phrase reaching forward. Describing a runner stretching out towards the finish line with his eyes fastened on it and his body thrust forward to reach the end. We've all seen races like that in the Olympics where they just thrust themselves to the ground and face plant. They want to win so bad, they don't want to miss it. This is exactly the picture that he gives us here. That's how we are to run. This word is found only this time in the New Testament. Once I have fixed my eyes on Jesus so as not to be mesmerized or enslaved by the past, then I can have my mind clear, sound, and sensitive to the things that God has for me. And then and only then can I reach for those things that are ahead. I have the peace, I have the clarity, I have the determination, I have the passion, I have the longing. Because my focus is Christ. Forgetting those things that are behind, pressing forward the things that are ahead. But in reality... Both of these things are done at the same time, simultaneously. Forgetting the past and reaching ahead. They're done at the same time. He knew that the only way he could win the race was to run forward, looking to the finish line. Where is he? He's in prison. That makes all the difference in the world, this guy's writing. He's in prison. 
But he still was looking forward towards greater things ahead, even if it meant losing his head, which did happen. Not at this time, but later on. Today is the best day of my life. Wow, what happened today? Nothing. It's just the next day of my life. That's why it's the best day of my life. Because I can't live in yesterday. Today is the best day of my life. Because it's the next day of my life in Christ. Very important. It is a constant warfare that we have to fight with spiritual weapons, not carnal. To not be distracted from reaching forward to the things that are ahead that God has for us. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. Notice Paul 30 said, the present must have passion towards the future. Listen to his words. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, focusing on our commitment. Our attitude, our actions, our commitment. One follows the other. You can't, you can't confuse them. You can't mix them up. The apostle continues his imagery of the race by the word goal, scopos, which comes from the word to watch or to gaze at a distant mark, as in the chariot races, in order to not deviate from one's course. For it could be fatal. Like driving the freeway. You've got to stay in your lane. It's found only this time in the New Testament. Also one time. Paul used all kinds of athletic metaphors. He must have been a real athletic guy. I'm sure he went to the theater at Ephesus. The amphitheater. Corinth. Literally to run along the marked out course. Remember Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, I do not fight as beating the air, but I give myself black eyes to keep my body under lest I be disqualified. All metaphor, boxing metaphor. <laughs> we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Wrestling metaphor. Use them all the time. The course God made for me and made for you will reveal every flaw in your life, weakness, the evil, and he enables us to run it. The question is, will we? I can run my course. Whether I want to or will run my course successfully, time will tell. But the course that God made for me is so custom made that you probably can run it with ease. And you say, that's nothing. But it's made for me to show me where I am not cutting it. To make me more like him. Less like me. That's why we don't compare ourselves among ourselves, lest we be unwise. 
the phrase press towards is the same as in verse 12, press on, to pursue or bear down upon the direction of the goal for the price. You ever see a runner leaning back? No, you're bearing forward, down, forward, the weight forward, you're bearing down. The goal and price in this context, I don't believe speaks of our reward for the works we do for Christ that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. I believe that's not it. The goal and price is also not the laying hold of the works prepared for us through, though they will be the vehicle. The goal scopos speaks of here and now as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to be more like Christ from day to day being conformed to his image the price brabeyan we get our word umpire from will be the culminating aspect being the resurrection in a glorified body just like him verse 10 and 11 that's the price it's not talking about reward. You're running this race by and through the resurrected power of his death and culminates in an ultimate glorified body resurrected out from the dead. That's it. The nature of the call is spiritual and divine, not human accomplishments by the word upward. The urgency is that I have been called by God. I have not called myself. The potential accomplishment is in Christ Jesus. Not in me, but in Christ Jesus. You remember Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 24, but none of these things move me all his sufferings and everything else. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Years later, as he writes his last will and testament, in 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul declared his determined purpose for life had been accomplished at the end of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Wow. The guy, he, he just kept pressing forward. Have you ever attempted to drive your car forward, looking backwards? Try it tonight when you go home. Let's see how far you get. You won't get very far. And when we as Christians try to live our life forward with Jesus looking back, whether it be being enamored with old things, oh, it's not the way it used to be. Oh, I can imagine when we came here. Remember when we first got in here? Oh, they were great days, but these are better days. 
The better days have nothing to do with the number of people or the, or the things that you're doing or anything else. It has to do that this is the present. This is where God is working. This is the next thing He's doing. He's the perspective of God is completely different from our perspective. That's what throws us off. We throws us a curveball. We throw ourselves a curveball, really. The person believing they have um, arrived and achieved all God has for them is like the Corinthians, immature, carnal, and not spiritually mature. In 1 Corinthians 4, 6, it says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. That's carnal. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11 says, you're already full. This is mockery. Because the Corinthians thought they had arrived. You, you're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us the apostle last, and men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you, you're strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored to the present hour where we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. <laughs> Boy, he rebukes them. Good. First Corinthians four fourteen says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Your parent, you know what he's talking about. Yet, we act the same way with God as our children act with us. It's the same parallel. The past accomplishments are not the only thing that can hinder us from pressing forward. But also, past failures. Be they events, disappointments, or unforgiveness that causes bitterness, resentment and discouragement that are sin and enslave us because we drag that dead corpse and try to run with it. You ever see runners? They run with the lightest little teeny things they can put on. The shoes. To cut as any half an ounce, quarter of an ounce, anything. Because they're running to win. They don't show up with combat boots, long pants. They want to win. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race, that is said before us, looking unto Jesus, the author of the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12, 12 through 17 says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down, defeated, discouraged, and feeble knees, 
and make straight your paths for your feet so that what is lame may be may not be dislocated but rather be healed pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, for uh, who for one morsel of food stole his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he watched, wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. Sometimes people misunderstand that. They say, how can God turn him away? He was crying, he was pleading. No, his tears were of remorse. He regretted the consequences. It was not godly repentance. If Esau would have gotten repented in a godly way, God would have forgiven him. He regretted the consequences, not the sin. There's the difference. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. You see the believers to be captivated all his life with the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which is to be more like him and one day be received with a glorified body just like the one Jesus had. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Look how far you've come since you've accepted the Lord. Look how far, look how different you are. Look at how your life has changed so much and blossomed. Where would you be all those if you hadn't walked with God all those years right now? Wow. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the earth. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Corinthians four, sixteen and 17. I'm in a process growth, development, maturity by the power of the resurrection, experiencing his death. And one day, when I die, I'll be instantly present with the Lord and then he'll glorify my body at the rapture. If I'm alive, it'll be glorified at the same time with the other bodies that'll be going up. And so, these are the principles regarding Spiritual maturity. Thirdly, we have the persons regarding spiritual maturity, 15 and 16. Look at 15. The Apostle Paul first addressed the believer who is mature. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. So Paul included himself as one of the mature believers here, but still needing ongoing maturity. He comes to the conclusion of the subject of spiritual maturity, the word therefore is a concluding word. It could be translated wherefore or consequently or in view of the fact. In view of what I have stated about the believer's spiritual maturity, verse 12 through 14, 
He uses the plural pronoun us. The Apostle Paul includes himself among those who are spiritually mature. And he never exalted himself above anyone nor lost sight of his need to be humble. Notice Paul used the word mature, which means full-grown, in contrast to childish ignorance. This is a little different word. He's referring to relative perfection in spiritual maturity that is ongoing, opposed to absolute perfection, which he denied in verse 12. He knew there were many who were progressing, but he equally knew there were those who were not. Paul indicated that unless they had this mind about spiritual maturity and lived it out every day, maturity would stand still. It won't develop. The word mind for nail means to have understanding, to think, or to judge. The tense is present active every day, every night. Their minds would be captivated with spiritual understanding, declared Paul, that no believer lay hold of all things the minute they are born again. They be clear on this. That no believer reaches a point in their life when they reach a final maturity. Not at the beginning or at any point in the process. That every believer is to press and pursue with passion to lay hold for the things Christ laid hold of them to be accomplished. That will lead them one day into the ultimate resurrection. But also notice that every believer has to do one thing every day that involves that threefold process. Forgetting all things of the past that would hinder us from running the race, be it past sins, past blessings, or failures as vessels of Jesus. Reaching forward unhindered with every ounce of strength to be partakers of things that are ahead like a runner stretching out to the finish line and pressing or pursuing with passion the marked out course for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus that will conform us more into his image and culminate in being resurrected just like him. They are to keep cultivating this spiritual understanding to captivate their thoughts and obey continuously this is part of the spiritual warfare ladies and gentlemen if it were easy we wouldn't need instruction <laughs> or exhortation or reminder there are salmon swimming upstream what happens at the end of that salmon at the end of the road what happens they die That's what happens to the believer. But they go against the current. Christians do not flow with the current of the world. They swim upstream. Notice the apostle addressed 
next to a believer who thinks there is another way or that they have arrived, God will deal with their needed maturity. Wow. Listen to his words. And if in anything you think otherwise, he's, you know, it's a one-way conversation here. He's presupposing somebody in the, in the crowd saying, yeah, but you know, I, 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 I think, I, I don't really agree with you, Paul. And there's people at times that come and say, you know, well, I don't agree with you. That's fine. You don't agree with me. It doesn't matter. You have the right to be wrong. No problem. Um, but people that think they know better. They don't let the word guide it. They, they, they let their experience guide them rather than the word of God. Paul bases his instruction on objective truth. Whenever you put experience above objective truth, you're wrong. It's completely wrong. Paul pointed out there would be those who would not agree on all. He had said, the word think, again, for now, is the same as the word mind. The word otherwise is heteros. It means of a different opinion. Heterosexual, different sex, same root word. Paul pointed out also that there will be some who know better than the scriptures by their words. This is what he's saying. Not acknowledging the authority of the objective truth of the word of God, ignoring the warnings and instructions, thinking they are the exception. I've met many people that thought they were the exception. And they were right. They were exceptionally stupid. Because they disobeyed the word of God. They thought that they had some special graces from God. That the rules didn't apply to them. Paul pointed out that if they were sincere, God would reveal this truth of his word. Listen, the word revealed, apocalypto, it means to uncover what has been veiled. And to be seen and understood as God's truth the indicative future active tense. Paul is saying, God is so good, so patient, so gracious. Okay, fine. You keep seeking the Lord and God will make it real for you. If you're, if you're open, if you're sincere, God will show you you're wrong. If you're not sincere, you'll remain in your ignorance. Jesus said God's will is verified by God's word in John seventeen, seventeen. Notice 16. The apostle addressed the responsibility of every member to walk in the maturity of their age. Paul declares spiritual maturity should always mark the believer in proportion to age. Listen to his words. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained. The word degree is in italics to indicate it's not found in the text, the Greek text, but supplied to give a clear understanding. The indication here is to the level of maturity one has come to as a believer. The phrase already attained means to come or arrive at, indicated by the aorist active tense. The level of spiritual maturity is different for all believers. We're not all at the same level of maturity or growth or development. 
Paul declares spiritual maturity always has this principle and all believers are to walk according. Let us walk by the same rule, he says. The word walk means to proceed in a row as a march of a soldier. Walking lined up together and following the same direction according to each person's maturity. The present active tense. The word rule complements it. It means a rod or a straight piece of wood that something is tied to to keep it straight. The word is used for a measuring line or a carpenter's measuring tape. We get our word canon from it. The straight measure for the scriptures. The canon. The measure. This is the canon for truth. The measuring rod. That's the word. This is the ruling principle for life in the spirit to be transformed into Christ-likeness. Notice Paul declaring spiritual maturity should be understood by all believers that are at various levels. Let us be of the same mind. He includes all believers, let us, including himself again. He used the same word again for mind, for nail, to have understanding, to think, or to judge. What a joy it is when families gather together and there's infants, children, young adults, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents in the same house, all acting according to their age. What a benefit it brings to each person as they have the example of the different levels of maturity. But what an embarrassment and lack of benefit if they don't act their age. We, we've all experienced adults that act like they think they're still teenagers. You kind of feel embarrassed for them, don't you? Let me tell you what, if I ever like that, smack me, okay? Wow. Are you a spiritual infant or a young child in the church? If you are, we will put up with your crying and your colicking at times. We'll be patient. We'll care for you. It's a legitimate stage and a joy to have you. But you need to grow, develop, mature spiritually. You need to take heed to the warnings of God and believe and obey God. First Peter 2, 2-3 says, As newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Are you a young adult or an adult? Then we know that you are not perfect. But we will instruct you, expect you to walk with Jesus, and to be strong, to be a doer of the word, to be an example to other believers, to beware of your evil flesh, the world, and the devil. John says, I write you, young man, because you have overcome the wicked one, you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. First John two thirteen and 14. Are you a father? We expect much from you. You're an example to all the church. The young children, the young adults, they all look up to you. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. 
1 John 2.13. It's great they have all the different ages and levels. Paul recognized the need of all to grow spiritually. So here you have the practical sanctification, the process of maturity, characterized by having the perspective of spiritual maturity, to obey the principles that ensure spiritual maturity, and the recognizing of all the need to grow for spiritual maturity. Everybody. Until the day we die. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you continue to deal with our hearts. And, Lord, as you press us to the mark, as we yield to you, as we seek you, and, Lord, as we run with our eyes fully set on you, Lord. Pray for the needs of their body, Lord, those that are here, and perhaps, Lord, going through difficult times and things that are causing distractions and a desire to just look back or look to the side. Father, that only slows us down. It only distracts us and sometimes causes us to go off the road. So, Lord, I pray for them. Your hand be upon them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Only you can repent. If you're out there on the radio, you're hearing, then if you believe Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead then you can call upon him. He will forgive you for your sins right now. This is your prayer of repentance. He's going to forgive you and make you his child right now by grace through faith. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.